Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Amen. Aren't those encouraging words? About the presence of our God and His help, His faithfulness in our time of trouble. I, I like that it emphasizes uh, the night seasons that we go through, that the Lord holds us and He is faithful. Uh, certainly, we understand night seasons in, uh, in our lives, the trials that we go through. And of course, it doesn't have to be at night, but just those difficulties that come. We think of those even in Israel right now who are going through uh, war. Uh, we have some friends who are missionaries in Israel and sharing updates about members of their church called up to the military to go and to fight, and we certainly understand night seasons. It's encouraging to remember we have a God who is faithful during our night seasons. He stands with us. And it just so happens it was in the night that the Lord Jesus came to the Apostle Paul in his time of encouragement and uh, discouragement and brought words of hope and encouragement to him in his time of trouble. So as we consider this text today and, and think about uh, the ways that sometimes our words create so much trouble, they, they divide, uh, people sometimes bring us threats uh, based on uh, what we've done or what they say about us, slander, gossip, these things tear apart and destroy. And sometimes even worse of all, we can pinpoint how we have participated with our own hurtful words. Yeah, maybe they started it, but we reacted and said something ourselves that we shouldn't have said. But today we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have courage, because even though the words of men threaten us and even our words fail, Jesus stands with us and his words never fail. As we consider this text, I want you to come away from it today encouraged by the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way that he in, interacts with the Apostle Paul, who even here had, had messed up himself in what he had said. But Jesus came to him and encouraged him with his word. And I want you to understand as we work through this text how you too can have courage and why it's important that we lean on the words of Christ for courage because so often the words of men will fail us. They'll threaten to destroy, they'll tear apart time and time again, but the words of Jesus never fail. Let's work through this text, and as we begin, we need to remember kind of what's been happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. You may have noticed even at the end of chapter 22, verse 30, we're told the next day because he wanted to know, so it's assumed we kind of know the context here, who is he who wanted to know? Remember the commander. The commander who had rescued Paul from the hands of the Jews who wanted to tear him to shreds. The commander brought his men and took him into the barracks. And remember, as Paul is headed into the safety of the barracks, being carried up the stairs, he says to the commander, well, can, I, can I have a word uh, with the people? And the commander lets him speak, and the riot uh, breaks forth again. And now the commander is ready to get to business. He's going to have Paul uh, scourged just like the Lord Jesus was. And then Paul pipes up, well, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and not condemned? 
And so they, they stop what they're doing and they don't scourge him. They just put him in prison. And that's kind of where we've left things. That's where we pick up the story. Paul's in prison and the commander's trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. Why are they so against him in all of this? And that's what verse 30 summarizes for us. He wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. So he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the first scene of this story is the commander actually calls a meeting of the council. You've heard of this council before. It's called the Sanhedrin. Same council that Jesus stood before, same council that Peter and John stood before. Uh, not known for its uh, justice, but at any rate, the, the commander realizes that this is a Jewish concern. And so he calls this council together, the Sanhedrin, to meet and to hear Paul's case. A very unique scenario. They haven't called themselves together. The commander arranges all of this. And so in verse 1 of chapter 23, we, we begin to see how this scene unfolds. Paul is standing before them, and it says he looks earnestly at the council. This is a serious matter. His life hangs in the balance here, and so he stares at them. You remember on the steps in his speech, he had reminded them that he had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a member of the Sanhedrin. So in this gathered council, it's likely, we can't say for sure, that Gamaliel might be among the men gathered there. That other men of the Sanhedrin would have known Paul when he was being trained by Gamaliel. This is not that far back in history that Paul was sort of one of them. And so as he stares intently at them, he might even be looking at men that he knows. He calls them brethren, kind of a term of, of respect there. He makes an amazing statement in verse 1. He actually says, I have lived in good conscience before God and all men. I mean, that's quite a statement to make. He made a similar statement to the Ephesian elders back in chapter 20 that, you know, as far as he could recollect, his conscience was clear about how he had lived and acted. And the high priest in verse 3 or verse 2, excuse me, doesn't like such, uh, you know, maybe even con considered it pride from Paul. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like Paul's claiming his innocence, and so he immediately commands somebody to strike Paul on the mouth. And notice the emphasis on words here. Paul says his conscience is clear. The, the high priest commands that he be struck on the mouth. It's about what's being said. It's about words. And so Paul is struck on the mouth, and his reaction in verse 3, in fact, I think I heard a few of you chuckle when that was read aloud earlier, because Paul just comes back with this you know, pretty good insult uh, at, at the, uh, the high priest here. You whitewashed wall. What's he saying? Well, a whitewashed wall was one that had been painted or bleached in order to look uh, better than it actually was behind the paint, right? So it's, you know, maybe crumbling and weak, but the white fresh paint was supposed to make it look, you know, new and, and strong and so forth. And so Paul's criticizing him. Really, this is a, this is a cry of hypocrisy, you look good on the outside, but you break the law. He actually says that there in verse 3. Do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Why was this contrary to the law? Well, the Old Testament law, as far as their judgment system was based upon, determined someone to be innocent until proven guilty. And so this was not the time in the trial for Paul to be struck. No determination had been made. There was not to be any punishment meted out at this point, and so this was indeed against the law. 
In verse 4, those standing near the high priest respond, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul sort of kind of backs off a little bit in verse 5, well, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, it's hard to say exactly what's happening here. Uh, Did Paul know that the man who commanded him to be struck was the high priest? Well, apparently, he says at least he didn't know. That is possible. The high priest changed pretty frequently, and so Paul you know, may have thought it was somebody else from the time that he had known the Sanhedrin, and it, it may have changed. It, others surmise some other things. This was likely early in the morning when this was happening, and so the lighting was maybe dim, and Paul couldn't see you know, who gave the command. Or, there's any number of explanations, but for whatever reason, Paul just wasn't aware that the one who gave this command to strike him was actually the high priest. And so this is sort of Paul's apology here. And he even quotes the law, Exodus chapter 22. He says, it is, un, it is against the law. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's admitting, I did just speak evil of a ruler of the people. That's why I appreciate that Paul's able to admit that, yeah, he had done wrong. Again, he claims sort of innocence. I didn't know it was him, but he had spoken evil of this man against the law. What happens in verse 6 is an interesting turn of events. Paul's beginning to see things fall apart before his eyes, right? The high priest is now against Paul, right, because he's just insulted him to his face. That's not good. You know, the one who's going to make the final ruling here, uh, he's already opposed to me. Okay, so that's not a good sign. So he kind of looks at the crowd, and remember, Paul has experience with Pharisees and Sadducees. And so in verse 6, it becomes clear, Paul makes this determination, this is, this is just a waste of time, this is not going to work, so he cries out, really the focus of my trial is the resurrection of the dead. Now, he's right because it's about Jesus and that Jesus claimed to rise from the dead, but he puts it in such a way that he knows it will kind of strike at an ongoing debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, we have trouble relating to this. We don't really understand Pharisees and Sadducees. But let's just say we had a political system where there were two parties. Okay, maybe you can imagine that. And let's say there was a gathering where these two parties were in the same room, right? And then somebody says, well, the reason I'm being judged here is because of government funding. Or, you know, they bring up some issue that the two parties don't agree on. You can imagine how quickly things might explode in the room and all of a sudden the person who was the focus has kind of been brushed off to the side and everything breaks down. Not that that would ever happen uh, in today's political scene. But at any rate, we sort of get the picture here. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, right? The Pharisees actually did. They didn't believe in a risen Jesus, but they believed in a future resurrection, They believed in angels and spirits. The Sadducees did not. And so verse uh, 7 points that out, or excuse me, verse 8 points that out for us. And so now the assembly is divided. Once again, words become the focus here. Words have divided the room. So words have divided Paul and the high priest, Ananias. There's things have been torn apart there. Now the room is divided as they debate about this issue of the resurrection. 
things get loud and loud. And even in verse 9, we see that some of the Pharisees actually side with Paul on this. Well, maybe he is right. <laughs> maybe an angel's spoken to him. And notice the little jab at the Sadducees there. Maybe an angel. They didn't believe in angels, right? So maybe an angel has spoke to him. So again, things are just sort of falling apart. And in verse 10, it's interesting that the commander sees this great dissension. There's another division word. And notice what he says about what might happen to Paul. Fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them. Torn to shreds by the division in the room that words have caused. So the commander takes him away back into the barracks. The theme of this whole first section, hopefully you caught it as we walked through it together, is that our words fail and create division. How's that for a, a hope-filled sermon today, right? We just, you know, our words, they, but they do, they, they just fail and they create division, right? There's this unjust treatment from the, the, the high priest and then Paul gets caught up in it and reacts with this evil insult against him and, well, now you've broken the law. Yeah, I did. I did break the law. And so all of this is falling apart. And so then he uses his words to create division. I mean, it's just everything is falling apart. And I think it's fair of us to imagine, you know, Paul back in the barracks. Can you imagine his inner thoughts there in the cell? I can imagine what I would be thinking. Oh, I can't believe I messed that up. That was my chance to finally actually talk about Christ and what had actually happened and, and make some good of this, but now they're never going to let me go. Now the whole Sanhedrin is against me. And that's how Jesus ended up dying, is the Sanhedrin called for his crucifixion. What's going to happen to me? I've messed this up. Is there any hope? Remember, what Paul knew from the Lord at this point is that he would head to Jerusalem and be bound in chains and persecuted. Paul doesn't know how this ends. It could end in his death. And he's probably thinking in his cell, well, there it is. I've done it. The next step is death. And on top of all of that, he recognizes that part of this was his fault, his reaction to the high priest. So the, the weight of our words is often heavy upon us. We, we say things that divide and tear and fail, and it just creates such a mess. You, you understand this. You've experienced this before, either the words of others that have hurt you or even your own reactions and your words towards others. Sometimes we call this, uh, you know, digging a hole for ourselves. The old adage is, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, right? Uh, if your words have gotten you in a mess, time to just, you know, stop talking, so to speak. Maybe you found yourself in these uh, scenarios before. Uh, I was shopping with a friend uh, one time, some friends in a, in a Walmart, I think it was, and uh, we met some people we hadn't seen in a long time, right? So, you know, one group meets another group that's like, oh, yeah, you guys, how you doing? How you been, right? And so uh, a member of the other group pipes up to one of the uh, ladies in our group and says, hey, when's your baby due? And, of course, the lady in our group was not pregnant at all, right? And so, uh, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pregnant. Well, Okay, so there we have a hole. There's that moment where you stop digging, right? Not today. <laughs> so then the, the, the individual follows up, no, I'm pretty sure. I saw, didn't you post something about this? You, 
when's the due date? Come on, tell us, when's the due date? No, I'm really not pregnant, right? Okay, well, I won't tell you where the conversation went from there, but at any rate, we get ourselves into trouble with our words, don't we? We get ourselves into trouble. Our words fail and create division. Maybe like the Apostle Paul, you've experienced words of injustice, accused of something that you didn't do. Maybe you've been represented unfairly before others, right? a group of people in the room and somebody says something about you. And it's like, no, 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 that's not at all what happened, right? It's, that's hard. That's hard. Maybe you've been rejected based on false assumptions that other people have made. Maybe you have been uh, mistaken by descriptions or flat-out lies about what happened. Somebody has made assumptions about your motives. In those scenarios, it's tempting to react. Maybe you found yourself in that place as well, where you've responded with your own words of evil, harsh insults. When sinned against, we often feel justified. Like, well, they started it, so I'm going to let them have it, right? When we are attacked, we attack back. When they minimize our work, we exaggerate our work. When they criticize our motives, we criticize theirs. When they slander us, we slander back. When they raise their voice, we raise ours. We often react with our words. And as you know, when this happens, we end up saying things that you, you can't take back, right? I'm thankful that the Apostle Paul in this scenario admits, he's like, oh, he is the high priest. Okay, well then, yes, the law says you shall not speak evil of a ruler. He admits that he was wrong. But even then, sometimes when we admit our failures, you know, you really can't pull back those words and take them back in and pretend they were never said. Sometimes the things that come out of our mouths create harm and damage that can't be undone, even after confession and forgiveness. So many of these messes in life are, are of our own making, even. Have we ruined everything? Is there any recovery? Have we messed up God's plan? Is there any hope? Well, the hope comes to us in verse 11. There in the night, the Apostle Paul, you know, again, we don't know his thoughts, we can guess, but there in the night, it says in verse 11, the Lord stood by him. Just pause there. Before Jesus has even spoken, I just love the way Luke describes it, the Lord stood by him, the presence of the Lord Jesus there with him in the barracks, standing next to him. There's something encouraging about the presence of somebody who's with you. I will stand with you. It's encouraging to know that somebody's ready to stand by your side through something difficult. And here, the Lord Jesus comes and stands by the Apostle Paul. But that's not it. The Lord then speaks to him. First, he says to Paul, be of good cheer, Paul. The, the, the word actually means to, to take heart, to take courage. One commentator, Kent Hughes, points out that only the Lord Jesus uses this word in the New Testament. All five instances brought wonderful comfort to the person he visited. He called to the bedridden paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven, in Matthew chapter 9. 
to the woman with the 12 year hemorrhage. He said, take heart, take courage, daughter. Your faith has healed you, Matthew 9. To his frightened disciples as he came to them across the storm-tossed sea of Galilee, he said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid, Matthew 14. In the upper room, on the night of his crucifixion, he said, take courage, I have overcome the world, John chapter 16, verse 33. This is Jesus' word for those who are seeking to serve him but feebly and have fallen into fear and he comes and reminds them with his presence and his word, take heart, I'm with you, I'm with you. Next, he tells Paul that he has already testified for him in Jerusalem and there's even a bit of encouragement wrapped up in that. Can you imagine hearing from Jesus, hey, you have been testifying for me in Jerusalem. That's just like a, you know, a warm pat on the back that says, you've been doing the right thing. You've been testifying for me. And notice that Jesus doesn't bring up Paul's failure in the room just a little bit ago. He's not there going, well, Paul, you really messed this one up. Good thing I'm here. You know, No, Jesus is just, just kind and encouraging with Paul. His presence is there. He says, hey, you have been testifying with me in Jerusalem, and just as you have been, I have a task for you to keep doing. He tells him next, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, this implies a number of things about the future for Paul. First, that he's going to be alive. <laughs> he'll, he'll be alive until he makes it to Rome and, and somehow able to testify about the Lord Jesus in Rome, in Rome. And so this also implies that Jesus still has a purpose for him. He still has a plan for him. Even though he messed up in front of the Sanhedrin, Jesus still wants to use him. How encouraging would that have been in those dark barracks in the nights when Paul's worried if he's messed it all up and this is the end of his life. And Jesus shows up and says, Paul, you've been serving me and I have a job for you to continue to do. You're going to be a witness for me in Rome. This presence of Christ and the promise of Jesus to Paul would encourage and strengthen him through the rest of his days. We get to watch all of that unfold through the rest of the book of Acts over the next few weeks. What we see in the second scene is that Jesus' presence and promises give us courage. They give us courage. Take heart, Jesus says. I am here and I still have a task for you to do. The presence and promises of Jesus give us courage. There's something about a person's presence, the, the ability to see their face and understand what they're saying, to know that they're, they're with you and that everything's okay, that we find incredibly encouraging. I remember one scenario where I really made a mistake with my words. I, I think I've shared this story before, but in case you don't remember, here's how it played out. I was an employee at a local college. Many of you know this college. And at the time, the, the president of the college was James Maxwell. Some of you will remember him. Dr. Maxwell was what we all referred to him to. And at the time, I was low on the totem pole. It was, he was the president under whom I had been hired and uh, began working there. And I just, you know, was in my first or second year there and uh, was, was still learning the ropes and getting used to working in a large organization and so on and so forth. 
And the president had actually reached out to me and scheduled a meeting with me, which, you know, already kind of leaves you on edge and, oh boy, what's going to happen here? And so our, our team, our department, had a little chat system that we used, you know, through the email browser. And so we could chat to each other. And so I was chatting with my direct supervisor, my boss, and saying, well, hey, what's, what's your schedule for the morning? And I was like, oh, actually, I have a meeting coming up. And for whatever reason, I, I was in a strange mood. In, instead of saying that I had a meeting with the president, Dr. Maxwell, I thought it'd be funny to, you know, just kind of give him a nickname. And so I respond, I got a meeting with J-Max at 10, right? Now, that's funny, right? And so I was satisfied with myself. I'm sort of waiting for the response from my supervisor. No response, no response, no response. Well, that's odd. Why isn't he responding, you know? And so then you start thinking about what you said, right? And like, well, maybe I said something that I shouldn't have said. Ooh, you know, it's probably a little disrespectful to have said that. And so I, I look back at the chat message, and to my horror, I have actually not chatted this to my supervisor. I've chatted it directly to the president of the organization. <laughs> I've got a meeting with J-Max at 10, right to Dr. Maxwell. <laughs> So then I searched the whole browser. Is there any way to unsend or undo or pull it back? By now it had been a few minutes. And I'm like, oh, so I quick chatted again. I am so sorry. I don't usually refer to you that way. I don't know what got into me. I'm really sorry. And so, you know, just that sick feeling in your stomach. What have I done? You know, I'm going to. But I remember coming to his office. And if you know Dr. Maxwell, if you know James Maxwell, you know he's a gracious, forgiving guy. And so I come to his office, and he made a point to greet me at the door, gave me a warm handshake, and say, hey, don't worry about it. It's no problem at all. He's like, I probably prefer Dr. Maxwell uh, going forward, but, uh, but it, don't, don't, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. And so we had a great meeting. And just, just the warmth of his handshake, his smile, you know, I knew, even though he'd said it on the chat, I knew that, hey, it was all right. I hadn't lost my job <laughs> just by what I had said. Maybe you can remember moments when you've made a mess with your words and it's finally the, the presence of the person who has forgiven you and who loves you that you find encouraging and helpful. Remember, Jesus' presence and promises give us courage in those times when our words have made a mess or the words of others threaten us. What's interesting is that, you know, in this life we can't give Jesus a handshake Right? We can't look into his eyes. And I understand we sometimes see that as a challenge, but what's true in Scripture is that Jesus says, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. It's in the same passage that we just heard those words, take heart or take courage, I have overcome the world. John chapter 16, Jesus reminds his disciples there that it's actually to their advantage that he go to heaven because when he leaves, he's going to send his spirit. And so the presence of Jesus in our, in our lives is actually through his indwelling Holy Spirit. And it's better than, than if we could reach across and shake Jesus' hand face to face. Why? How could it be better that the Spirit is in us than to not have Jesus? Because he's with us at all times. Jesus was here and there and with this person at this time and this person at this time, but with the Spirit, he's always with us. 
And if you think the outward handshake is comforting, think of what the one who dwells in your heart can do to comfort you and encourage you. You see, Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit is exactly what we need in those times when our words have messed us up and we need his help. The gospel reminds us how this happens. You know, how could God dwell in us and and promise his help like this? It's because Jesus paid for our sins, died on the cross, and rose again. And by wiping away our sins with his blood, cleansing us from our unrighteousness, and giving us peace with God, part of the gift of the salvation God gives us in the gospel is the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. That's hard for us to fathom. We tend to think in terms of, well, I get eternal life and I get to live in heaven, but don't move past the gift of God's Spirit. That when you trust in Christ as Savior, God dwells in you. And there's real meat to his promise when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He meant it so deeply that he sent his Spirit to dwell in you forever. Think of that. Think of that. God's presence and promises give us courage. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then you have God's special presence with you today. He's always with you. He will never leave you. You're never alone. Now, there may be times when you feel alone. And we must come back to the words of Christ, the promises of God that say, I am not alone even when I might feel it. And we remind ourselves of His truth, of His word, We cling to what he's told us. This presence of Christ is even attached to his special purpose for us. Remember he told the Apostle Paul, I I still have a task for you. You will testify for me in Rome. He, He spoke similarly when he gave us our great mission Remember that mission uh, to his disciples, which was then passed on to the church in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Now, we often stop there. It's like, okay, good, we got our mission. We know what he sent us to do to make disciples and to teach them in the word and baptize them as they get saved and so on and so forth. But maybe the most important part of that whole thing is the final phrase. Jesus says to them, and lo, I am with you always. See, it's his presence and promise that gives us courage and strength to live the Christian life and to do what he's called us to do. And even when we've participated in the mess that words create, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. His forgiveness is sure. He paid for your mess on the cross. He's not leaving you. He's not abandoning you in that, and he still has a purpose for you. Now, it's important, as we remember that Jesus stands with us and is helping us, that we respond the way he wants us to. I mean, I love Paul's response, that he, he admits that he was wrong. Sometimes the courage Jesus gives us is to take that step, to say, you know what, my words were wrong. What I said was not right. Would you forgive me? To remember that he is with us in those times. 
His presence and promises empower us to stay focused on our tasks, to press on. In your darkness, I encourage you to rely on God's presence in you and his words to you. Get in the word. Study the scriptures. Rely on what God has said rather than your feelings. Now let's move on to the next scene. The Apostle Paul has received this great encouragement, but right after this, there's going to be this threat that comes. And this is a, this is a death threat in the strongest terms. And isn't it often that way? Right? We, might, we might be reminded of some verse of Scripture. Oh yeah, it tells me this, that Jesus is with me and I can trust Him, but then something happens in life that brings into question the promise of God and we're left with that question. Will I trust what He says or will I trust what my circumstances are telling me? And this is exactly what's happened in the Apostle Paul's life. These 40 plus men threaten to kill him, actually saying they're not going to eat or drink until they make this happen. And this gives them a matter of days to pull this off. And so this threat is taken, and you see it there. You can read about it in verses 12 and 13. We read it out loud. They come in verse 14 to the, the Sanhedrin. And this is just how twisted things are. They actually come to the council and tell them, we're planning to murder Paul, and we want you to help us. Right? I mean, think of that. These are the judges. These are the ones deciding Paul's fate. So if any justice was going to be served, they'd say, actually, you 40 men are the ones who need to be put in prison. But not at all. They actually agree. And so in verses uh, 15, they, they tell them how they're going to participate. They're going to call for Paul to come back. We want to hear more from him. And so we're left hanging in this tension. Whose word is going to win? Whose word will prevail? These 40 plus men. This is such a strong death threat. It's a guarantee somebody's going to die, either Paul or 40 plus men. And so the question hangs in the balance. Whose word is going to win? Will it be Jesus or will it be these men? And again, we find ourselves there so often. Will I take Jesus at his word or will I listen to the threats of men? Will I look at my circumstances and doubt whether Jesus will really come through? And we don't have to wait long because in verse 16, we see how God solves this problem. And I love that he does this through kind of a, a small, young voice. We find in verse 16 that Paul has a sister who has a son. And I just have so many questions. I just love to know about Paul's family, you know, and was, how many siblings did he have. We don't have the answers to those questions. So we just have to, you know, he had at least one nephew. We know that much. I'd also love to know how the nephew heard, heard about this. He's, he's called a, a young man, which if you remember, back to Eutychus, the same word was used of Eutychus, and we guessed that he was probably between 8 and 14. So actually, I'm curious, to so help us imagine today, how many 8 to 14-year-olds do we have? Somewhere in that range. Okay, okay, excellent. All right, so I think it's safe to imagine one of these 8 to 14-year-olds, you know, Maybe, maybe you look kind of like Paul's nephew, not the girls, of course. But anyway, so you hear, here's how maybe it could have unfolded. We, again, we don't know. But somebody that age maybe had a, a friend whose dad was on the Sanhedrin, was in the council, right? And so hears about this plot, dad's talking about it at home, and the, tells his friend, and the, the nephew's like, wait a second, that's, that's my uncle. And so it, it just, do you see God's sovereignty in that? 
somehow the nephew finds out it is somebody who actually has the rights to go visit Paul in jail. It had to be a family member. And so, so the nephew goes and tells his uncle, they're, they're, they're going to ambush you. I mean, 40 plus men have decided they're going to try to take your life. And so Paul tells the centurion nearby, we can, we can read about that in these verses, and the, the centurion uh, sends the boy over to the, the commander, and there's all sorts of little signs of God's sovereignty here. I mean, what commander of this strength and might and power and so forth listens to a young man? But he does. Tell me, young man. Yeah, we actually are told um, in verse 19, the commander takes him by the hand. Another confirmation, he's probably young. So the commander pulls him aside and says, tell me what you've heard. And the, the, the young man tells him that there's, there's this plot against Paul. And this is helpful information for the commander because if Paul had died as a Roman citizen under the commander's watch, that could have cost him his job, maybe even his life. And so he actually takes him seriously and they begin to make plans. And I just love the way we see God's sovereignty in this. There's the strength of the 40 men. We're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And God just sends a, a young man with some news, whispers it to Paul, Paul to the centurion, centurion to the commander, God's providing behind the scenes. What we see is that God's word prevails over the threats of men. God's word prevails. Jesus has promised that Paul will be alive to Rome. And, you know, when, when all else seems to be in question, is this, is this, you know, is this plot going to work? Is he going to be killed? God provides this boy who hears about the news and comes and tells Paul and the other guards there. God's word prevails over the threats of men. When God's promise says one thing and your circumstances say another, who will you trust? Will you trust what you're feeling and the questions bouncing around in your head or will you come back to the word of God And remember what he has said. Remember the scene from Paul's life. I mean, how is this going to work out? Forty plus men have vowed to kill him. But God's word does not fail. Jesus had said he would make it to Rome. And so he's going to make it to Rome. We must remember that his words prevail over the threats of men. God is always at work in the background, often in small, unexpected ways, working for our good, accomplishing his purposes. We can trust him. He never fails. We come to the final scene, and this is where it actually unfolds. And again, words are the focus here. We actually have a letter from the commander to Felix, the governor. Which is really kind of interesting on a, just a purely historical level uh, to have this letter included. Uh, Luke must have found it somewhere, tracked it down, and included it for us so we could see how the commander communicated with the governor. So in verse 23, the commander makes plans, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. I love this. This is like the pride of Rome here. You can see the commander really standing up. Oh, 40 men? Okay. How about 470 soldiers, you know? Try and beat us. And so he's got 200 spearmen, 200 marching soldiers, and 70 on horses. And you can just imagine the scene, you know, some long procession here. And there's Paul bound on his little horse in the middle. Good luck, 40 men. I think we know who's going to go hungry. 
So the commander builds his little army here to march, and he decides that the best course of action, as you see there in verses 23 through 24, is to get Paul out of town right away. And so actually the third hour of the night, again, we don't know exactly when they started counting the night. It could either be from sunset or from midnight, but either way, it's late or you know, it's in the middle of the night is the bottom line. And so just, we got to get out of here. We're going to escape from Jerusalem, and they're going to take him to Caesarea where Felix is governor. Felix was the governor of that province. It's the same position that Pilate had, just in a different region. And the reason they go to that region is because that's where Paul was from. Felix is the governor of the region where Paul was from, and so he's the governor that would oversee it. Now, I like Claudius's letter here. Do you notice uh, there's just a little shifting of the turn of events here? Um, he says in verse 27, the man was seized by the Jews. That's true. Was about to be killed by them. That's true. Coming with troops, I rescued him. That's true. Having learned that he was a Roman. Ah, wait a second. <laughs> Claudius didn't learn he was a Roman until a little bit later. And so it's just, again, a an interesting peek into uh, the way Claudius is trying to make sure he's on good terms with the governor here. So he continues on, I wanted to know the reason they accused him, so he's sending him to Felix because it's gotten out of hand in Jerusalem and Felix needs to make a judgment here about Paul and it just ends in verse 30, farewell. So they send the soldiers, verse 31, and uh, they're traveling up from Jerusalem, first to Antipatris and uh, then on to Caesarea. We're told in verse 31 uh, that they, once they got past the, the worst section, uh, the foot soldiers returned, so that's 400 foot soldiers returned uh, to Jerusalem, and the 70 horsemen continued on with Paul to Caesarea. One commentator points out that uh, indeed the, uh, the terrain uh, from Jerusalem to Joppa was difficult, uh, was you know steep and all of this, and, and a set up uh, poorly for protection. So an ambush would have been easy in that section, and so probably the reason that extra troops were for that first leg of the trip. Here's a little map um, of it. We looked at this one last week, but Jerusalem's here, and so the rough terrain would have gone up to about here, and then it was smooth sailing the, the last seven or eight miles to Antipatris and then all the way up to Caesarea. Uh, and so that's kind of the route that they probably took. So they deliver the letter, verse 34. He reads it. Uh, he asks where Paul's from. Is this really in my jurisdiction? And he puts him in Herod's Praetorium, uh, the king's kind of own special place of guard until he can be tried, until his accusers can come. And so at least at first, it seems like he's trying to set up a fair trial. The accusers need to come. They need to testify against you. Paul, you'll be kept here until they arrive. And uh, ultimately, the threat of the 40 men fails. Now, we don't hear about the 40 men. Don't you kind of wonder, right? What did they do? There actually was a way they could pay a lawyer, pay a certain amount of money, and have their oath you know, revoked or undone uh, so that they didn't have to die. So it's probably likely that they, that they did that. Um, rather than actually starving themselves to death. But we don't know. All we know is that Jesus' words prevailed over the threats of men. As we come to this final section, we see that his words preside over all authorities. And, you know, this is in the form of the strength of Rome here, right? God uses Rome uh, to protect Paul on the way to Felix, and you know, we know very clearly Rome was not a, a, a flawless government here. 
In fact, not many years later, Rome will be the source of heavy and intense persecution among the Christians. So the, the moral of the story is not, you know, trust Rome. The moral of the story is look to God's sovereign work behind the scenes. Because Jesus had said, you will safely come to Rome, the city, God was sovereignly using now even the Roman government, the strength of the the commander and his 470 troops to protect Paul. Why? Because the words of Jesus must be accomplished. And God's sovereign even over governing authorities. And it's just fun to see how God's power always wins. At this point, it looks like you know, Rome's in control, but we know it's God behind the scenes. And this is the testimony of Scripture, right? We see it with Pharaoh, where it's his word against God's, God prevailed. We see this with King Nebuchadnezzar. When he spoke out against God, God prevailed. We see this in Esther's life. Some of you are coming to our class on Wednesday nights about Esther working through her history. God prevailed, right? God's word always prevails. Now, we can be thankful for governments that seek to uphold what is good and put down what is evil. God has established that earthly authority as part of their role. And as citizens of a country where overall that's what is sought, is that kind of justice, we should be thankful to God and pray for our country and as good citizens participate in what God is doing through our nation. But we do not hope in a government. We hope in a God whose word prevails over all authorities. We hope in Him. And so God's promises and power preside over everything. We trust Him. I love singing together. He's the ancient of days. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall. Right? Where do we look? We look to God. His word never fails. And so friend, I encourage you to hope in His words. Build your life around his words. When you find yourself downcast, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, the psalmist says, put your hope in God. Get back to the scriptures again. Study what God has said and put your hope in him. Devote yourself to knowing the scriptures and ordering your life around his word. As you think about your plans and the future, ask yourself those questions. Well, what has he told me to do? How how does his word shape my my thoughts and desires and priorities? I'd encourage you, as you make a decision, open the scriptures. Not, Not randomly to one passage. Okay, Lord, I'm looking for an answer. No, not that. But to read and read and read and read. Read the whole Bible if you need to as you think through a decision. Why? So that the the values and priorities and the promises of God will rise to the surface and infiltrate your thinking as you think about your own wisdom and decision for the future. We also encourage one another with his words. This is what Jesus did when he came to Paul. He gave him words of hope and encouragement. And as we seek to encourage one another, God's word is a great way to do that. I, I, I love the way that this is already happening in the church. Having gone through a health trial in our own family, how many of you reached out with words of scripture of encouragement? I love the little phrase, hey, the Lord has used this in my life recently and I thought I'd share it with you, maybe it'd be an encouragement to you. And it was. The scriptures are helpful. And so to be a people of the word who are encouraging each other with the word by our conversations, our notes, our advice, our counsel, our, all that we do, 
word-centered people because God's word presides over all authorities. And so as we see how Jesus just dominates this scene in one little verse, he stands by Paul, he brings his encouragement, and that settles it. May we too take courage in our night seasons, in the times when our circumstances seem to be spiraling out of control and maybe even the things I've said and done have added to it. Look back to the one who stands with you, not just at your side, but by his spirit in you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. His words to you will never fail. No matter what you've done, His forgiveness, paid for at the cross, is sure. No matter what you've said, He will not abandon you. And no matter what mess might be made, His promises to you are sure. You can count on Him. We see this in each other's lives, and we've seen those who have looked to the future with confidence in eternity stared death in the eyes and understood that Jesus has secured their soul forevermore. We've watched as people have gone through health issues and clung to the promises of Scripture that God still loves them, even though it doesn't feel like it today. We've watched as those who've lost a spouse or a child have clung to the promises of Scripture that God is still good, that He's working for good, and that there's hope of a resurrection in eternity. We know God's words are true. We know we can trust Him. And so what does God's courage by the presence and promises of Jesus help you to do today? Maybe it's to take that step of humble confession where you say, you know what, what I said was wrong. Would you forgive me? Maybe it's then to joyfully trust His forgiveness and promises for the future. Ah, He has forgiven me. I don't have to condemn myself because I know Jesus has paid it all. So I can move forward in His promises having confessed my sins. Maybe it's the courage to obey, to take that next step, what Jesus has called you to do because He's in you and His Word never Father, we thank you for the promises of Scripture. We praise you that Jesus shows what he is like here in this text. And even when Paul had messed up, Jesus doesn't come to, to berate him or to make him feel worse about his sin, but just to encourage him. He speaks words of hope, reminding Paul that he still has a task for him and he still will use him and he will even be preserved on his way to Rome. And so as a people, Father, help us to rely on the presence of Christ in us by your Spirit. May we live and move and act with confidence and courage because Jesus is with us at all times. He will never leave us nor forsake us. May we be devoted to our task, our purpose, because of what Christ has said to us. And may our lives be built on the promises of your word. Help us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. 
May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.